Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. I am excited for this week's topic because it's one that I actually know virtually nothing about. So this week we're looking at how do we look at dead babies from the past to tell us about parenting practices thousands of years ago, and what can we take from this in our modern world? Now, joining me for this is Dr. Sharn Halcrow of the University of Otago. She is a bioarchaeologist, and I actually shouldn't say joining me, I should probably say leading the conversation, because again, I couldn't contribute anything to this. So it is more like an intro to bioarchaeology baby style. So please join me. I am so excited for this conversation and hopefully we can all leave with a bit more knowledge about how our past can inform our present. Without further ado, Dr. Sharon Halcrow. All right. I am so excited to have with me today, Dr. Sharon Halcrow. She is an associate professor in biological anthropology at the University of Otago. More specifically, she's a bioarchaeologist with a research interest in all things to do with infants and children. Her research addresses central archaeological questions of the intensification of agriculture and human responses to the seminal time in prehistory, with a regional interest in prehistoric Southeast Asia and South America. She manages the skeletal analyses on several international archaeological projects in Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, China, and Chile, and also has an interest in the ethics of bioarchaeology. Or, as she puts it in more simplistic terms, which I like, she studies dead babies from the past. So thank you for being on. Thank you so much, Tracy. Um, kia ora, that, that means hello from New Zealand. Um, thank you so much for inviting me here. I follow your wonderful mahi, your work, with interest. It informs my understanding of, of infancy and childhood work in the past, obviously. And I hope that mine's relevant for listeners today and for you also, Tracy. Uh, I, I am so excited by this because, you know, as I, I said to you before, I have usually people on where I have a sense of what they do. And I have a sense of some of their, I have no idea about this. It is just fascinating to me, just the sheer idea that you can look at, I mean, dead babies and learn so much about parenting and everything from times that we just don't have access to. And I find that just mind blowing and fascinating. So, I mean, let's start with how did you get into this field? How, like, where does this come from? Because it doesn't seem like something I hear little kids saying at, you know, five and six, I want to study dead babies. So where did it yeah, no, it, it's, I've always had a love for biology throughout schooling, but I also really liked when I went to university, social theory and evolution that I did in high school. I started my tertiary education at Auckland University in New Zealand as well, and I had really excellent mentors up there who really stimulated my interest in archaeology. Um, so things like looking at material artifacts um, from the past to, to tell something about people's past lives and also in biological anthropology. Um, but it wasn't until I made my way down to Otago, uh, where I am now and stayed there, which is the best, you know, university in New Zealand and closest university to the South Pole, Antarctica, and most beautiful. Uh, I took a bioarchaeology class. Um, and in that class, we, we got to you know, handle the bones from, from these people um, who'd, who'd 
bequest their bodies to, to the anatomy department. And I really got hooked on the practical aspect of actually being able to read the bones and tell something about, you know, their identity, how they lived, you know, in their experience during life. And my mentor, um, Associate Professor Nancy Taylor, was amazing. She invited me to Thailand for an excavation project uh, just after my uh, fourth year at university. And it was a really exciting prehistoric site. And that really started my journey in Southeast Asian bioarchaeology. So very, very blessed um, to have been given all those opportunities. And it was just by chance, really, that I got interested in looking at infants and children. Nancy actually gave me a topic for a, um, a fourth year dissertation, like a small research project looking at that. And then I just kind of went on and, you know, expanded my interest around that topic. That's so cool. It's, I mean, and so are you in the field a lot? Like, do you have to travel a lot for the field work there? Yeah, we do travel a lot. And in the past, when we did archaeological projects overseas, say in Southeast Asia, we'd bring the bones back. But, you know, things change and we realize, you know, actually, this is their cultural, yeah. biological heritage. Those, those stay there. So, we do a lot of work overseas, so it does make it difficult in terms of family life, um, but very rewarding as well. My children come over with me and, you know, they love to learn different languages and, you know, experience different cultures. And I've made lifelong friends over there. So, yeah, we do a lot of travelling. Obviously not at the moment, but which, which is a bit hard for, for research. But Yeah, what do you do? And, I mean in a pandemic yeah if you can't get it's like not being able to run a study for a psychologist you have no no but they could do it all online so yeah. they're able to but I mean, you can't the work that I do write and I think we were talking about it the other day some of my work looking at bridging you know, evolutionary theory and bio bioarchaeological theory and care a lot of it's um, social theory so I can draw on a lot of other work so I like to do syntheses for the discipline that I hope will be in, of interest to other researchers um, but we, we are writing up papers based on previous data that we've got but okay. I am looking to get back into the field <laughs> <laughs> do, yeah well let's actually I want to get a bit more of an understanding of bioarchaeology as its own thing, because you've mentioned biological anthropology, these other areas, and those are areas a lot of listeners and, and myself are a bit more aware of. So can you tell me a bit of both how is bioarchaeology distinct from biological anthropology, but also how does it complement? Because you talk a lot about having these fields, like one of the papers that you know we we'll kind of get into, but having these fields that need to merge as almost complementing each other to give us a fuller picture. So what does that look like? And and what do people need to understand about bioarchaeology in this framework? Yeah, well, um, bi biological anthropology is obviously a very broad, broad subdiscipline of, of anthropology. It's a study of people using biology or concepts of biology and human behaviour. You know, so it uses a biosocial approach. And bioarchaeology, in a broader sense, refers to the study of human skeletal remains from the archaeological context where we also use this biosocial approach. So we're just really a tiny segment, I suppose, of biological anthropology. 
um, and as archaeologists or anthropologists, we're interested in archaeological questions about past, you know, biological adaptation to the environment. So, you know, questions like the development of agriculture, um, industrialization, climate change, the emergence of social inequality, and the impacts that they had on people in the past. So really, a lot of the work that we do is sim similar to, say, paleoanthropologists, but we're just work working to tell people stories from the past, but from different time spans. So if I understand this correctly, <laughs> it is, like, I guess this is, okay, no, I have to understand this better. When yeah. it comes to, you, you get these bones, you get a story, you're able to tell something about their lives from it. How do you then map that onto a social understanding? Like, it seems like I get the biology. You can learn how healthy they were, age, you know, all this kind of stuff is there from the bones. Where do you get from the bones to the behaviors, the, the practices? How, does, yeah, how mean, do you map a, that? It's a great question, <laughs> and it's something that we struggle with a bit more in prehistory compared with historical yeah. human remains um, because we've obviously got a really rich cultural social context that we can draw on from historical documents so it does get a little bit harder when we go back into prehistory uh, there are various things that we can do so looking at individuals biological sex and obviously yeah. we've then assumed that that may tie up with their gender things like that looking at health um, you know, males versus females. We can also look at age or age identity, which is a social aspect, obviously, and see how people fare across the lifespan. So, yeah. and we can also use a lot of the social context from the archaeological analysis. So, looking at pottery vessels and other types of things that may have been included in the grave to try and tell something about their individual's identity. Um, but yeah, it's it's much easier to be able to look at those social things, including like looking at, you know, childcare and all that kind of thing. Yeah. When you've got more information from historical documents. Well, and that actually raises a question for me because you study dead babies, so young children, infant bones, and stuff. Already, there's something so. I mean, it, it's devastating because they died young. It's not like you get access to this. So already there's something else that is kind of abnormal from a life history perspective going on there. And yeah. how does that fact, because, you know, they're, the practices may be harder. Are they harder to understand from that perspective of seeing yeah, I mean, dead babies? We, yeah, we always acknowledge that, obviously, when we're looking at the very young, that they are biased. Yeah you know, group, group of individuals who something has gone wrong somewhere. Yeah. Um, so we always have to think about that when we're interpreting our data. What we can also do is look at childhood experience from adults. So we can look at things like um, diet through doing incremental sampling of chemicals, that have been incorporated in, into their mm -hmm. teeth, for example, or their bones, and we can look back on what happened to them during childhood. Okay, so then you you can use the adults to kind of give you a bit of a better picture of what would have been normative, and then I guess assess how the baby bones might be different from that yeah, at that point yeah. of what you might expect to see yeah. what's going on. Yeah, 
and, the, and there's general things as well that we can tell about, say, you know, childhood mortality. So if we're looking at the number of individuals who died during infancy or, you know, preterm or, you know, early childhood, just as today the World Health Organization, unfortunately, you know, uses statistics of, yeah. you know, mortality of under fives to rank populations in term of, terms of health. We, we, can, we do similar types of things. Okay. Uh, it also gets a little bit more complicated when we're looking at the number of babies that died in the past because that's related to fertility. It's not necessarily related to ill health. So obviously the more babies that mothers are having, the more that are going to be included in the cemetery sample. So it gets quite complex. Tell me more about that. I am like, I hadn't even thought about the fertility piece. but. Yeah, it's a, it's a conundrum. It's a, it's a conundrum, and we try and look at as many facets as possible from the society, so including, like, number of infants and children who died and the age structure of those, different types of pathology that they're experiencing. We look at the size of the overall symmetries, but, again, that's quite hard because we can't necessarily go and excavate entire cemeteries would be there you know our entire lives doing that um so there's a lot of different factors that we have to keep in mind and yeah i think that most of the literature shows that it's fertility which we're interested in as well fertility change with you know the agricultural transition Mm -hmm. has more of an effect on mortality statistics than actual health can so is it like more fertility, more mortality, or yeah? So, more, so if you have higher fertility, you'll have more babies being born, so you have a more chance that they'll actually be included in the cemetery sample. Okay. Oh my God, it is. That's so many. It's like so many variables all at once. Yeah, no, like so kind we're, of, we're trying to tell stories about the past, and uh, you know, finding the most parsimonious explanation for those is. You know, and some people don't necessarily like the fact that you can't tell definitively. But I think it's really important that we can we say, you know, within our science, that you know it could be this, but an alternative explanation is this as well. And then methods change. We might be able to tease those questions apart more and find out. I love that. That is so. Let's go to one specific area that you've talked about because I I get this the weaning. This is something that. I know I've read in more historical, not the prehistory weaning age, but like I know it's in the teeth. Tell me first a bit more how you assess this, because I do want to understand. I know it's usually teeth, right? Is that what you're looking at teeth for it? Yeah, teeth teeth are really useful. Uh, We can also look at bone, but teeth are really useful because we know that they form at distinct time periods. So, and they they preserve very well in the archaeological context because teeth, of course, they have to be very hard. They're highly mineralized. Um, So we can look at the chemicals within the teeth to try and figure out what people were eating and also, um, you know, how long they may have been breastfed and when they started to get supplementary food and when the um, weaning process finished because we know it's generally... It's a long process. Um, if you want, I can go into the, the yeah. How do you? But how do you tell that? Like, yeah, what is in our teeth that says, "Oh, this baby's eating some solids. This one's still just on breast yeah, milk." Yeah. So, so 
So <laughs> um, we can look at what are called stable isotopes. We can look at carbon and nitrogen. Um, they're, they're often used in archaeological studies because these elements provide insights to um, dietary patterns. So carbon and nitrogen um, isotope values relate to foods people consume during life. You know, we are what we eat, essentially, and those are preserved in the skeletal tissues. So carbon provides information on, like, broad kind of groupings of plants based on their photosynthesis pathway. So different paths have different um, isotope signatures, shall we say. Um, and nitrogen isotope data relates to protein consumption. And so you have an enrichment in nitrogen as you kind of rise through the food chain. So top predators will have, you know, a stepwise incremental en enrichment in nitrogen. Um, so babies that exclusively consume breast milk, they have a positive offset of nitrogen compared with their mothers. Okay. They're, they're like little carnivals, essentially because they're eating, they're eating the mother's tissue. They're eating yeah. the milk that is produced by the mother's tissue. So if we can, we can compare the mother's nitrogen levels, sorry, the, the proxy for a mother's nitrogen level. So we'll look at all the females, for example, adult females within a site, which is problematic, right? Because they don't all all eat the same thing, but you know we take we take the average, and then we can compare the baby's um, nitrogen isotopes to see how that relates. Um, and you know, growing infants obviously require dietary supplementation um, from around the age of six months, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, then you get the new dietary components being added into supplement or complement the breast milk um, and then eventually they'll start to consume a diet that's that's more similar to the adults around them and we can see that by you know the introduction of different types of plant foods like staples say rice or millet wheat and we can see that the carbon isotope levels can change as well wow that is, yeah. I, you know, right. you and, just, and, there's, and this is, this is um, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of assumptions around the various, various things that we do in archaeology. We know we've got sampling issues. Yeah. Well, yeah, you don't know whose mom is, is, you know, who's the mom whose baby belongs yeah. to who to make that. But it's fascinating. And I never had thought about the fact that, my God, my children are eating my tissue. That is, uh, <laughs> that is a whole new way to think about breastfeeding now. So in general, when you do this, what is the general weaning pattern that you've seen in prehistory? Like when does it generally end? How how long? Because we often talk about, you know, full-term nursing or what is, everyone wants to know what's a worldwide average, what's a historic, and I don't think obviously we have it. It's obviously a range, but what do you find in these prehistory samples where of course there, there weren't, as far as I know, you know, you didn't have formula or anything like that to, to go on. So what was a common pattern of breastfeeding there? Yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, very early bottles that have been found in, in Europe and all that kind of thing. But um, there, there 
most of the work that I do is in in Asia or Southeast Asia and yeah. some work in the Pacific. And what we generally find from the isotopic analysis, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they stop breastfeeding at the time that it isotopically shows, because it just may only contribute to say twenty percent of your diet. Okay. You know, you may you may still breastfeed for a long, long period of time till you're eight, or you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but it may be, you know, less than. 20 or 30 percent of the consumption of your calories so it won't necessarily show up isotopically right um but generally um between you know two and a half to four years of age we can see isotopically some of our work in china found this and okay. uh, similar kind of time patterns as well around three years of age in chile okay um but again there, there's variables as well you know, there's variation between individuals. So it's something that's, you know, it's very individual to to, to someone's experience, you know, the mother's yeah. experience in, in the baby's experience. But generally, yeah, I and personally from having children who breastfeed, you know, I think it, breastfeeding beyond two years is quite feasible. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm still nursing a five-year-old right now. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's I coming to an end. Right, but... Speaking about it makes me want to relactate. But, so, <laughs> you know, it is, it is, um, <laughs> yes, I can say that. It is a very normal thing yes. to have this so-called extended breastfeeding as, I, as you know. I, I love what you said though and I had not I think I've always heard these kind of ages of two and a half three that seem to crop up as an average as really being the end of weaning but I find it fascinating to now hear that that may not be the case that it's just the proportion of kind of caloric intake coming from it we can yeah, no longer but, see but there may be some small you know there may be some you know a nighttime food to get your baby to sleep or whatever yeah. and know, which makes total sense because it's just the easiest thing to do and it's yeah. the most you know for kids it must be lovely <laughs> <laughs> yeah right that is it yeah. but that is it, it's really interesting to think about that because it's true beyond that age I, I found in both my kids, my daughter went to somewhere between six and seven. I missed it. It's suddenly because I had the younger one realize, oh, yeah, you've stopped. I don't quite know when, but it's been a while. OK, um, but it was not very it was comfort. It was when hurt or upset. It was such an occasional thing that, yeah, from a biological perspective of someone studying her body, it probably would be so negligible, but the emotional impact certainly wasn't negligible. The emotional connection and having that that time there was obviously really important. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And I, I love hearing that now that it kind of puts that two and a half, three, just kind of on the shelf over there is an age at which it's more about the amount of food you're getting from it. But that's really interesting too, from that perspective, I think about parents today being told that, you know, they need past six months, breast milk's not important or past a year, it's not important, but it sounds like it actually had a decent part of their diet up to that age is really what we're saying. It wasn't just that it happened. It was significant enough for their caloric intake yeah. that it's so showing up. It. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it was something that was ever withheld. 
<laughs> oh, wow. So yeah, when we think about that for parents today, I'm like, yeah, because some people worry that my baby's getting too much breast milk and not enough other food. But it sounds like from a historical perspective, we're like, well, your baby's fine. That's, you know, it's it's a compliment. You can have more like complimentary foods plus this. Yeah. So one of the findings that you had that I want to talk about here is this sex difference in weaning and socialization. So you in one of your papers talk about in the central Jiao period, that you found sex differences in weaning and socialization. And again, we're going to go, obviously, I know now that there's a lot of, we're telling a story, we're trying to tell a story that we're guessing from. What were the differences? What What is this story? What is the sex difference story here in terms of these behaviors? Because, you know, I know I've heard differences in breast milk, like it, from a biological anthropological perspective, we see breast milk has differences based on child sex and all these other features. So, but weaning, I had not thought about that process being different. So I am, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll talk about some of the work that we've been doing as part of a large project in, in Central Plains of China. I just wanted to mention Dr. Melanie Miller. She's doing this stable isotope analysis. She's a postdoc at Otago and in, in over in Berkeley. Um, and we're doing this in collaboration with um, Dong Yu, Doreen Yu, and Kate Petronkina from um, City University of New York. And we're really interested in investigating the inception of social inequality because previous work at this time had shown that there were six differences in health indicators and diets between adults, um, male, male and female adults, um, in the Bronze Age dynasties compared with early populations. But we thought it was, you know, really important to look at when this started in childhood to understand this across the entire life course because we can only really understand you know, adult experience by understanding what's happened in childhood because it has lifelong repercussions, as you know. So we're looking now again at the chemistry of the bones and the teeth of infants and children um, that formed in childhood of the adults to ascertain their dietary life histories. Um, the the um, Jiao dynasty came into power about uh, 10... Um, 1046 BC and maintained political control over large territories of north central China for hundreds of years. Um, but it was really interesting because you start to find this social stratified and centralized forms of power with kings and nobles and regional rulers versus commoners. Um, and from the previous bioarchaeological evidence from the health, we start to see some kind of, you know, sex differences ha happening here in terms of treatment and in, in terms of socialization. Um, so Melanie's done some amazing work. Uh, she analyzed, we're a little bit constrained. Obviously the work that we're doing is destructive. And as archaeologists, we're all about preservation. So, you know, it's 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 hard to get it, get an enormous sample, but we we're really blessed to be able to analyze 23 individuals from two different archaeological sites. Um, and we looked at boys and girls, and we found that the girls were fed differently to the boys. The boys seemed to have a diet with more millet, whereas 
girls had more rice. And we can start thinking about food as being preferred food, prized food, and, and socialization there. So I think that we're seeing, you know, some of the earliest forms of social inequality between men and women could have been emerging at that time. What is the difference? Like, I can't eat grains. So the millet versus rice, then I'm assuming it's a, obviously rice is pretty nutritionally void. We know that. It was millet just I think better? millet was probably, probably more, more prized. Um, so it's just showing you that there's a gendered um, use of food here. So and, and food is obviously the, the best form of looking after <laughs> individuals. Mm. And there may have been other socialization processes as well. Um, yeah. Wow. So what other, um, can I ask what other socialization things you might think go into that? Like when we see this kind of health inequality in children, so already you're setting the stage. What do you think from examining other elements there do you think is going on from more behavior, like this link of this dead babies to the behavior going on here is what what would that typically go along with yeah, in terms of other? There could be a lot more work that's done from these archaeological sites, which have already been, ex a lot of them have already been excavated. There's some new analyses that we can do to um, do like sex determination through peptide analysis of teeth. So the really young babies that we weren't able to do a sex estimation before, we can we can figure we can figure that out. Um, it will be really interesting to look at mortality profiles, so to mm -hmm. see whether there are more babies who are female versus versus male and that type of thing. Um, and there's so much more we could do in terms of dietary analysis as well. Expanding our sample sets would be a really good thing, and also looking at childhood. Um, disease so looking at paleopathology okay wow there it, it's amazing how much you can glean from from one tooth like it's, you got a tooth and here's a history so in general like you've talked a bit about how we kind of go from dead babies to parenting practices here, but you had this paper, the care of infants past bridging evolutionary anthropological and bioarchaeological approaches. And you talk about the need to do more in terms of understanding this link. And I love you, you mentioned there's a framework in terms of studying people with disabilities in the past. And I admit I got my back up a bit when I first said we need to view caring of infants as a disability and I'm not a disability, but I get it now. I, I, when you went in to explain, it really is like that. So how do you see um, getting this perspective going, how to assess it? And I mean, from a more fundamental question, why has the mother-infant dyad been ignored for so long in this field? It feels like are we not central to evolution given that this is how we all got here? So, yeah, I think that the mother infant diet and caring, nurturing has been a really important part of, you know, developing an idea about our deep evolutionary passes. Paleoanthropologists have always looked at this and they've always put it as a central factor. Um, I think in terms of bioarchaeology, the reason that the mother-infant diet hasn't been look, 
at much is reflective of our own society biases. Bioarchaeology, paleopathology, so looking at disease in the past, is, um, you know, we're looking for data. We're looking for scientific observations. And we may not find, for example, any any pathology on, on infants and children. We may not find, as as you talked about before, a mother and a baby being buried together. That's very unlikely. Okay. Um, But I think it does. Sound like a raging feminist, which I am. I I think it's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. No, it's a great thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a great thing. Um, I think it's because mothers work, so caring, looking that type of thing, is still considered natural somehow. It's something that's not not skilled, it's not complex. And we all know this has been criticised since the 1970s and earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and as you said before, we spend more time, you know, writing and thinking about the care of animals in the past and in, in archaeology than the care of children. But kids made up a really large amount of, of part of, proportion I should say of past communities and a lot of people would have engaged with that work you know of all ages you know so lots of allo parenting going on Mm. from you know brothers sisters uncles aunts you know grandparents and you know everyone else in the community and so I think it's really central to understanding past societies and life ways I mean it was a lot of past work labor you know and people are really interested in looking at metal working you know yeah and it's like it's got that physical thing that you can look at so a lot of a lot of the yeah but so what got me thinking about this framework was the great work by Lorna Tilly looking at disability in the past and it's something it really needed to be done but of course a lot of the disabilities are invisible you know, a lot of the individuals that she and others have looked at are, you know, very, um, you know, you have to have that that pathology on the bones, which you don't always have, you know. That's true. Um, but I found her model really useful to compare with uh, the model of care of childhood and just really an argument of why we should look at childcare in the past, how much work it actually takes. Can you try and to try and convince use a model that's already you know accepted and people are jumping on this so yeah and and people have been starting to look at it so hopefully I've contributed something so can you share a bit about the model just so that people understand what model you're talking about what it means so the model from Lorna Tilly's perspective is a four-stage model so and it's really good because it starts us thinking about the individual within the biosocial social context. So looking at their bodies within a social um, cultural context. So the first stage is looking at, you know, how old the individual was, you know, different form things about their identity, the archaeological context, the time period. Uh, the second part is looking at pathology. So looking at if there's any evidence for pathology, doing a differential diagnosis. Then the third 
stage it's looking to see whether that individual would have required care for long-term survival and then the fourth step is looking at the types of care that's needed and thinking about the social context of care how people were responding to the individual and how the individual was responding to the carers so it's really great framework and lots of people are now using it so it's fantastic when I wrote this paper, I really wanted to go into explaining why the care of child care of infants and children is also important to look at. And this is partly because Lorna Tilly said that the caring of young isn't as complex as caring for an individual with severe disabilities. They are very different types of care and the time frames are different because as you know, children develop. So the types of care that they need will change over time. But looking at the model, looking at the type of care and response that someone with this, you know, so-called severe disability has, I argue that infants, they're so altricial, they need so much, they're so vulnerable, they need 24 hours care, they can't control their temperature, they can't feed themselves, they can't hold their heads up. Yeah. It's, you know, they need to be rocked to sleep. They, they need 100% of their nutrition from their mother or others in the society who may be allo feeding them. So it was just, I, so I just want to explain that I do really appreciate Lorna's work, um, but I thought it was really important to also talk about infant care and try and make it visible because it has been really invisible and I think that that's a gender problem. I agree like to me it makes sense that you would have to look at infant care in this I mean because again just from an evolutionary perspective we're not here if babies aren't cared for like there is a degree of just practicality here that that is central and I always think I um I did a, a, a continuing education program through, we live close to a Haudenosaunee reserve, right? So it's, um, and I did a, a care there, they talked about the culture and this framework of at the center is the culture. Right outside that are the children. They are central with everyone looking in. And then around that are the mothers and then the care around and, and works its way back. And yeah, it made sense. She explained that of course children were central. Children were outside of culture, the most important thing, because that is your future. Like that is our survival. Without our offspring, we don't survive. There goes your culture. There is everything else is dependent upon the care of children. So when you have this model and you're talking about linking, you know, this evolutionary anthropology with the bioarchaeology, how how does this look like what are you taking from each and how do we get to say you know you can look at food and we use that as a proxy for care but what about things like emotional care about the type of of comfort and this that are so central to this piece of caring for an infant how do you get to that in these fields what what do you put together to get there yeah, well, there's a lot of things that we can never know, but I mean, we can look at ethnographies and look at, you know, and then there's problems, obviously, looking at so-called traditional societies and, and how they care, um, looking at, you know, 
the amount of times that you know infants are fed you know that they're never put down you know those types of things um you know the the evolutionary stuff is really important for bioarchaeology because it starts getting us to think about how human babies are unique compared with other baby primates non-human primates they're so vulnerable so even just accepting that in the requirements of care should mean that we acknowledge that we acknowledge the labor force that goes into that and obviously the survival of of the species yeah. <laughs> um we can look at other things as well from an evolutionary context we can look at things like helping of uh w women during labor during childbirth when that developed you know how that's really important and how if traditional ideas about labor um, or medical care is withheld you know the devastating effects that that can have yeah. you know and that's related to you know changes which happen in the placenta during um, evolutionary development we need that and we've got these social skills you know whether they're traditional birth um, midwife methods mm -hmm. or um, medical methods to help with that type of thing so I think that you know anthropology is great because we've got these different fields you know mm -hmm. but sometimes I think it's just so we, we're just talking to each other we don't necessarily think about what we could bring in to help us understand people in the past from these these other means so I think it's always really important to keep in mind whether it's archaeology whether it's paleoanthropology whether it's social anthropology it's really important for us to think about care and babies from you know a, more than a four-field approach you know you can even yeah. look at psychology you know and other things like that I like what you said about that though that you need all these different fields and it's they do complement each other in this i i want to ask about one of the things cuz and it's not in this paper but i am fascinated by it from just a general history question is this use of agriculture because everything i've read recently suggests that although it has been a positive in many ways for humans it also may have been a bit of a downfall for us as well and you know you mentioned and i i may be extrapolating here but you know that rise of inequality that comes about that you start to see was that linked with like what has been the effect of agriculture on us as humans but also as parents and the well-being of children here that is what have you found? Can you answer all of that? Yeah, and <laughs> it's a great question. And I think we need to do more work into it because I'm really interested in looking at the origins and intensification of agriculture. There's kind of a popular belief that, you know, we're, we're all agricultural societies today, or most of us are. We're, we're, we're reliant on that, you know, it's given us means to have surplus you know, and have society as it is today. But we forget that half of our society is actually living in really overcrowded and sanitary living conditions. So we've got overpopulation, we've got lack of resources for part of a lot of the world's population, um, and they don't have access to 
nutritional foods, clean water, that type of thing. So while it does give some people that surplus, it doesn't necessarily give other people that surplus. So um, obviously a lot of that you know, social disparities come about from after industrialization, but it had the beginnings with the development of agriculture. Um, you know, and you see what happens with societies, you know, before some societies, before they developed agriculture, they weren't sedentary, they weren't living in the same place. Um, but agriculture allowed some societies to maintain a sedentary lifestyle. And then you've got the potential of having a bigger population, a rise in fertility, potentially, um, and more insanitary living conditions, ultimately. So it doesn't have a good effect necessarily on the health of, of individuals if you look at it from that perspective or modern day's perspective. It's interesting that you talk about parenting and there hasn't been too much looked at in that context there are things that we can look at in terms of archaeological um, uh, material artifacts including um, the way the babies were carried sometimes you may have carrying um, stuff you know carrying them on their back or their front okay so <laughs> um, and, and some people argue that those came around in certain parts of the world for um women and men to be working and having having babies on their back their arguments also problematic because i think babies are always carried yeah i was about to say i'm not more sure likely, more likely carried on their backs um but some of these things do pop up in the archaeological record around the time that you've got um, more intensive agricultural practices um but yeah it's a it's a big area that people haven't necessarily looked at very much. And there's been a lot of assumptions about the division of labor, how that division of labor occurred during the agricultural transition. Yeah. You know, so women are staying at home looking after the kids and men are out, you know, tending Farming to the, and <laughs> um, You know, it's like man the hunter, woman the gatherer, you know. So, yeah, so there obviously <laughs> needs to be a lot work put into that i mean today you see women out doing a lot of gardening in the fields in northeast thailand so yeah. these things need to be looked at at a critical critical yeah. eye so in terms of looking at like something like those sex differences you found in the central Zhao period what when you compare if you have those teeth or differences from non-agricultural like histories before do you see a lot of sex differences or does that kind of gen i'm going to say gendered because it really i think it's sex inequality but it maps more onto the gender gendered inequality do you see that in pre pre-agricultural dead babies do we see as much of that or does that kind of inequality seem to stem more from an agricultural period on yeah, we find that um, we've got more of the sex differences occurring during the agricultural period. Um, there needs to be work, more work done, or this is in China, but there needs to be more work done in Southeast Asia. We don't have a lot of Neolithic 
um, cemeteries. So, um, or pre, so near, sorry, the Neolithic period is, they're obviously agricultural, but we don't have necessarily many pre-Neolithic, pre-agricultural cemeteries. And it's probably because there was a change in society during that time and they started to bury so there's a lot that we can't necessarily tell the difference we can't really do a comparison of you know um pre and post agricultural we can look at at the intensification of the agricultural process okay and so do you see that as it gets more intense you do see more inequality building even across that that uh, we find, yeah, we're finding that in China, definitely. Um, okay. And Melanie's going to be doing some more work looking at later periods in China too. So that will be really interesting to look to see whether those sex differences are more extreme. As it goes on. that Do you find, I mean, you are I know you generally work in, in China there, but you also have these other sites in Chile and other places what are some of the similarities across it? Because these are different cultures, like vastly different histories. And, you know, even at that point, that long ago, they still would have been very different. But what are some of the overlaps that you see between these different cultures in terms of babies and their development and and the way we might assume parenting goes between them? Yeah, what was really interesting, I think, in the Chilean work, so we work in the Atacama Desert, um, uh, Dr. Charlotte King was a postdoc and she did uh, um, this um, isotopic work and we're working with Bernardo Ariaza and Vivian Standen, um, who, who are academics in Chile. Um, and we were doing a comparison of infant feeding and weaning practices during the development of, of the agricultural process. And we didn't necessarily find that there was any major, major differences over time from the pre-agricultural to the post-agricultural. It was only when we found really intensified agricultural process at the end of the cultural periods that there were any, any major differences. And we also found amazing variability in weaning practices. Okay. So there's so much intra-individual trends in weaning times, the timing of the food, timing that the food's um, being um, introduced, different types of foods that are being weaned onto. So that was very, very interesting. But there's also an issue <laughs> with looking at these chemicals, the, the isotopes, because they can be affected by physiological stress. So I think some of the things that we're seeing in in terms of the nitrogen profiles were actually evidence for physiological systemic stress. Um, So it's not always as clear cut as we want it to be. So what happens is you start catabolizing your your body tissues. So if you go into a state of malnutrition or famine, so things like that could have been happening or were really, really sick. And of course, with babies, as we talked about, something went wrong yeah. at some point there. So they might be more prone to something like that. Yeah. That yeah. is, it's so difficult, but it's so fascinating. I mean, it's just, yeah. 
Now, the more work we do, the more questions we have. So, right? That's lovely, I always lovely talking with you because you know <laughs> you think about these things all the time, but it's getting the interest from you know the outside, yeah, from the discipline that we can really start to think about other things that are important to others. You know, yeah, that go in there because as well. It's so. I mean, just in general here, I find this all fascinating from just even a, a an academic perspective, so to say. It's all there. But I think it's also really important for a parenting perspective for today's parents. Like, I think that when we understand our past history, it helps explain why we might have certain practices that we do. You know, even just thinking about, we often talk about inequality as if almost it's this modern problem that we have when in reality, as you're telling me, it goes way, 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 way back, um, even for babies there. So how do you link like for people to understand why they should care about the past, not just from an academic perspective, but in terms of informing or helping us, uh, it may not inform, but to help us understand modern parenting. How do you see the link between our parenting in the past and parenting today? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we can only really understand where we are today by understanding where we came from. We, we have to understand our history, we have to understand our prehistory and, and our evolution. I mean, as we were talking about before, the whole survival of our species is based on the care of the young and especially of infants, you know. They are so altricial. They're in a state requiring so much nurture and care, you know, compared with all other primates. And we have developed a lot of social mechanisms to help to do all that work. But a lot of these mechanisms that were developed in the past have been broken down today. So, you know, if we want to call them Western societies, you know, a lot of single parent families, a lot. And nuclear families, or even thinking about low income families. There has to be an acknowledgement <laughs> that caring for, for infants and, and children is, is the most important job we can do as, as humans, in, in my opinion. And if we think of it from an evolutionary sense and from social history sense, um, you know, a child requires extreme energy expenditure and... <sighs> To understand the dire effects or the diet, you know, outcomes socially and in terms of health, if that diet somehow is disrupted um, and things go wrong for both the mother and baby. So there's a lot of structural inequalities that's kind of making it really hard for some people in society to, to try and um, look after their kids the most easy way that they can you know, for, for the kids' outcome. And, you know, there's schooling, there's health interventions and all that kind of thing that governments and other organisations do. But I think thinking about extended community and allo parenting and help, social uh, monetary help as well, is really important. And, and just general valuing of parents. Absolutely. You know, you know and their mental health. Yeah, because it, it's true. Like we do, and it's always that cliche, it takes a village to raise a child, but it, it really does. It takes this support and community around. How yeah. do you 
sorry, just out of curiosity, do you get a sense of in your work and looking at, uh, at the archaeological element of it, how to determine the type of shared care, the aloe parenting, the aloe care there was in, in history? Or is it just that we assume we assume it's there because of the cultures or are there is there evidence from what we've you've dug up? I haven't done anything to understand how that was structured. No, we. This is this is a thing, and in, in prehistory, we can look at things, you know, from the archaeological context. If they've got, um, you know, shared housing and that type of thing, you know, those type, you know, yeah. um, but generally, we are using models that have been developed from ethnographic work. Okay. Um, and that makes sense though. That and that yeah, is that bridging yeah, of what you said, yeah, taking all these yeah. different fields can, and having to look, look at we can look at, you know, kind of so, maybe size of families if we think about fertility, but that those are kind of nuclear family ideas. Um we can look at uh, we can start to look at um postmarital uh, residents and that type of thing to see if you've got metrolocal or patrilocal um, residents and the effect that that might have on have on children um yeah but it is it is it is very hard when you go back further in the past yeah but okay. you know without a doubt there would have been extended help for for children yeah and to see it today i mean when i go over to northeast thailand and work there it's really hard work in terms of you know for me it's the heat and the humidity and looking after my kids and you know traveling and doing all that strenuous stuff but it's also like a holiday because they just they'll just come and my friends will just come and whisk my children away you know <laughs> i was like oh, oh or if I'm that eating, sounds lovely i know if i'm eating my friend will come in you know, when the kids were little, you know, and pick them up and go and, you know, show her the, you know, the trees or the birds <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, wow, that would be amazing. It's so interesting because, you know, it's funny because you, you, talking about that makes me think how you've looked at this culture, you've seen this shift towards inequality and everything that started years ago within those cultural locations, but yet that shared care is still more prominent today. Somehow yeah, so over that... The shared care is in the Thailand context. Okay. Yeah. I haven't I haven't spent time in China in that context. It's. I guess it's true. Although so, so, we do seem to have some evidence, at least like when we look at, you know, the, the grandparents taking care of kids and that's more prominently yeah, yeah. identified. Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, rituals, say, around... Uh, new uh, women that have just given birth, you know, in the amount of time that they may need, you know, mm -hmm. to heal and just be with baby and be taken care of, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, as opposed to a place like the US where people are sometimes back at work three days later after having yeah. a new baby, I mean, which is the most traumatic thing that I could ever it, it's, you know, experience. I that, feel like it's I was talking to a friend about this actually the other day and I feel like what is done to mothers with that separation from a biological perspective it's like you've lost your baby yeah. like your body is now expecting 
to have this proximity and this time, and that's being taken away. And that is psychologically devastating, I, I think. Like, yeah, that is... devastating, and, you know, in terms of the mother-infant diet and hormones and stress. Yeah, it's... It's, yeah, it is horrible. It, I mean, I went back to work quite early, um, but I had the luxury of, you know, scooting over to it to a nursery that was really close and they're amazing there but I was talking to my friend yesterday about it and I said it's the most traumatic time in my life I've actually got post-traumatic oh, I'm not surprised like <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, it, it, I feel just, like the, the amount you know even just trying to express I mean it's just ridiculous whereas you know in the past this wouldn't have necessary in some societies it wouldn't have been necessary here I think in the we're so lucky to have been a era where we've got antibiotics you know for mastitis and all that kind of thing because I don't know if I could have fed some of you know one of my children um but they also had shared um allo nursing you know allo breastfeeding Mm -hmm. I actually have Dr. Palmquist coming on in April to talk about that because I saw in your book she's got a chapter on that. Yeah, actually does amazing work looking at that. And just normalizing it because it is normal. It's totally normal. And I could see how, you know, it's really it's really important. You know, and there's you know, obviously shared milk practices and that kind of thing. Um yeah, so it's. I think it's hopefully becoming more accepted. I it makes me think actually about one of the. It, I know it's a struggle in your work of we don't know who mom is, and when you're doing those analyses, you take the average. But I mean, depending on how common the shared milk, it's almost like they're eating all the moms going on. So that average might actually be a better sense yeah, of what's yeah, going yeah. on. That's a point. Yeah, I'm like, hey, you kind of just solve one of your little problems there is just expect mass aloe nursing. And that's what goes there. So yeah, yeah, it's and yeah, I see. But it is interesting to think, though, like even within the Thai context, do you see the inequality early in those sites, too, or to do with agriculture or not? Why context is quite different. It's quite it's quite interesting in a way, because I think that you've got a really in terms of looking at agricultural development it's a bit different it wasn't as fast as some other places in the world because you've got a multitude of natural resources you've got you know fish and and lots of you know small animals you've got um you've got um plants and fruits and, and, and insects that people were eating they they don't necessarily need rice is it you know what i mean yeah it's true yeah <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit it was a bit slower in terms of um social disparity um we do see that there is kind of a big change later in the iron age so path after the bronze age which is interesting in terms of health change, but we're still trying to get our head around the social inequality part of it because we're not necessarily finding that there's these clear-cut divisions between males and females. 
Really? So okay. It's a really interesting concept. And I mean, it, it makes sense as well in terms of thinking about um, society and, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a, a society ruled by men. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, suddenly we get one and there's not as much inequality. I've got some, yeah. So we've got some ideas about what's happening in terms of um, power structures and, and gender and that type of thing. They wouldn't have been so distinct, I think, in, in, in Southeast Asia in that time period. Wow, that is... That's so cool because it is, I mean, you're getting all these different cultures and yeah, I, I think about, you know, the indigenous peoples in Canada and we've been studying it with my daughter and it's true though, the, the cultures that the nations that steered clear of agriculture were ones that tended to be close to the water, lots of, you know, they were strong fishing communities and then over winter being able to, you know, hunt larger animals like moose and whatnot that could sustain longer is, is what yeah. I've read. That's, I, I don't yeah, have, you know, yeah. but it like, just makes sense. Yeah. And when I was talking about before, you know, pre-Neolithic Neolithic populations and then being sedentary or not, it doesn't always hold true. So we had like pre-Neolithic populations in, in Thailand that would have been sedentary because they had all those resources there. Yeah. They you don't know, need so to. Looking at health differences between that time, all the assumptions that we have about various things don't necessarily hold true to different environments. Yeah. So it's very context-specific, um, and lots more work needs to be done on that, especially looking at the Neolithic kind of transition. In these places where you see um, the sex differences, and I know I've kept you so long, I apologize, but I do have one more question. Hopefully you're okay with it. But when you see sex differences, is it always favoring the male in terms of things in these cultures you found? Have you ever found the contrary where we've got that sex difference in a society that's like, our girls are getting the best because they need it? I don't know. Does that yeah, pop well, up I ever? Think, I think that, I mean, there's been very little work really that's been done in terms of care and gender. So there needs to be more work. Obviously, the studies that I've talked about have shown some preference towards boys um, or, or gender disparity. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting. Um, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think sometimes the interpretations of some of the bioarchological work assumes that girls aren't valued. So there's been work that's been done looking at um, groups of perinates or, of babies within cemetery samples. And there's an argument that because they all died around the time of birth, that they must have been um, victims of infanticide, which is not... Yeah, why... Well, because most baby the the normal age of death distribution, you would have a peak in the infant mortality around the time of birth. So that arguments. Yeah, doesn't make sense. That... Um, but they have tried to look to see if there's any bias towards males and females doing ancient DNA work there because they would assume that the babies that were being killed are, are, are 
boys or, or girls. So, yeah, it's problematic um, to be able to do that work because ancient DNA analysis sometimes is quite hard, but this new peptide analysis that I was talking about, you can actually look at, um, you can look at using very non-destructive destructive methods, you can look at sexing individuals from the teeth. So we'll be able to look at the really young little babies to look at to look at um, sex. Wow, that is so cool. That is like I love it. it's. This is what I love about this podcast is all this cool stuff I get to learn. I always say like I hear about things. I'm like, oh, in another life, I would love to do that. And now I get to. I'm like, I learned about mini puberty. I've learned about now that we're identifying sex at for dead babies at like birth there. <laughs> it is so fascinating. I I just thank you so much for sharing all of this today with everyone because it is, I, I agree with you. You have to understand our past to know how we got to where we are and certainly seeing some of the inequalities even starting earlier that have persisted for quite a while, but also just the need for parents to know you know, I mean, take homes for me here for parents right away are, yeah, we need more support and shared care. Clearly, that was part of it. But I still love, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to that breastfeeding, that this idea that it made up such a large portion of their diet up to two and a half, three, that you could still see it in the analysis that that's what, you know, so many families worry that, and they're told to worry that their kids breastfeeding too much and stuff. And it's like, no, this has been... Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's interesting talking with you about it because I hadn't really thought about it in that context. But yes, it, it does. It's, so yeah. much. It makes so much sense <laughs> that that is... And when we look at... I mean, we're finally getting some studies that look at, you know, components of breast milk beyond a year. And it, so, of course, it was a big part of their diet. It is filled with, you know, immunological factors, et cetera, to prevent disease. And they would need that at that age. That's when they start exploring... That's when they, and I, I think about it from a, a perspective of like a social history and I'm going, well, it seems like A, it prevents disease and health. There's that health element of the breastfeeding. But I also wonder how much it also keeps wandering little people from going too far is, you know, but I do think there's always these dangers that exist in these cultures and, you know, especially hunter gatherer, but even during agricultural periods, kids could roam freer. And it's almost like the breast keeps them just, it's that invisible tether to say, you know, you're going to want it enough to come back, come back. Don't go too far now until you're old enough to understand. Yeah. Don't go over there because yeah. danger. Yeah. It's, it's, ama it's amazing though. When you see some of these kids playing around, you know, really, really young kids, but they're with kids that are, you know, it's just a couple of years older and they just know, they just know how to look after them. Yeah. They it is, all the dangers. They're always alert. Yeah. You know? And I also love, because you can also see from the other perspective, how much younger kids learn from older kids. Like we like to talk about adults we model for our kids. I mean, maybe we do. We do. I know that I'm not going to dismiss it entirely, but they learn so much more from other children that it's mind boggling. Like I always say, when people talk about socialization, don't get your kid with same age peers, go pick a couple years older 
And those are the people you want your kids spending time with because they are going to soak up. So pick a good person too, because you don't want them soaking up all the wrong things, but they will like a sponge absorb that to a degree that, you know, and it's like cultures for most of history seem to have taken advantage of that, that there was like a knowledge that these kids, A, were more competent, but also caring there. But anyway, that is, so before we close, can you please tell us where people can find you to read up more on this and papers, your lab, you know, what projects you have going, not that usually people I'm like, call out for participants, not going to happen in your case. I don't think, um, <laughs> that would be a little weird, and a little awkward. Yeah, um, Twitter ancient, cho ancient children. Is it right? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> um, but they can look um, up your name. Just Google, um, Bioarchaeology of Childhood. I've got a, a website, so you'll you'll be able to look at that in in a blog. Um, and I will share all these in the show notes too, so people will yeah, be you can yeah, get the link. Just check the show notes below, and you'll be able to access all these sites. Yeah, Childhood Bioarchaeology. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it'll be there. Whatever it is, it'll be there. We'll get that. So you have that. And then do you have, you put everything up on the blog. I know. Do you have a lab website for the projects and like articles and stuff or just really your site's the best to go to? Oh yeah. So that, that site links to my university website, but just, okay. you know, Sean Halkrow in my email is shan.halkrow at otago.ac.nz. And I'm sure if you're interested in any of these studies, they can email you to ask for some copies to read more yeah, about sex definitely. differences and everything. Definitely. And a lot of our work is open access as well. Oh, we good. believe in open access. Oh, I wish but, all disciplines did because yeah, it's yeah. a problem because it's the publishers that are making the money. Then out of yeah. Uh, well, that's yeah, I always email access whenever I can, but I when I can't do that, I will distribute it. Um, and I'm on ResearchGate and academia.edu as well. Okay, yeah, yeah. and that's what right. always feel yeah, free to reach out to researchers. <laughs> yes, and everything will, like I said, all of this stuff will be here. But um, I just thank you so much for taking the time to share this. This is beyond fascinating. And I am very excited to see what you guys come up with next because I do like, I'm excited to see this blend. If you can get people to do the care of infants past, as you've proposed, I am very eager to see what comes from that because I feel like more and more we are getting researchers to realize they need this collaborative approach when it comes to these issues. And it is, and this one is definitely important um, to cross disciplines here with everything. Yeah, talking to you, it's been collaborative because I've started to think about how my work is more relevant to parenting today so it, it's something that we always need to keep the conversation going about so it's yeah. oh it absolutely is relevant here so thank you I, I hope you really although I know in the midst of the research though it can feel like it's all about the academic element of it because that's what you're immersed in but please know yes hugely relevant for so many people so thank you so much and again, check the show notes, everyone. You'll be able to see all of her work. And I strongly urge you to read up more on this and think about your past and how it's affecting you today so that we can all learn from that. 
That is it for this week's episode. And I want to thank Dr. Sharon Halcrow again for being tolerant of my ignorance in all of this and answering so many questions, as well as giving us so much to think about for the next little while. I know I will be. I particularly remain amazed by this idea of weaning being about the nutritional element of breastfeeding and not the emotional element, which is crucial to how we think about the nursing relationship overall. Anyway, please join me next week. I have with me Dr. Jenny Roger. She is a professor of communications at James Madison University. And we will be talking about a paper that we actually co-authored together on the topic of how cry it out, the sleep training method, extinction sleep training, became authoritative knowledge, or rather how we just decided that that is what we all should be doing. So please join me next week for that conversation. And in the meantime, happy parenting.